Hi, this is Guy Raz. And I'm Mindy Thomas. And together we bring you Wow in the World. NPR's podcast for curious kids and the grown-ups. And we're back with all new episodes. New scientific adventures both in and out of this world. Find Wow in the World on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. You know John Hodgman, right? The super brilliant kind of bookish guy who's been on The Daily Show, bored to death, maybe half a dozen movies, and, you know, also the PC from the Apple ads. Well, I have known John for over a decade now. He's one of the sweetest guys ever, one of my best friends, and God bless him, the man almost never says a swear word. He doesn't cuss, especially around his kids. In fact, he remembers pretty much the only time he broke that rule. Not long ago, he was giving his son a pep talk about dealing with some jerky kids, and he wanted to inspire him, you know, kind of get his confidence back up. And so he dropped the S-bomb. And uh, and my son, I watched my son's eyes brighten with confidence and a smile just to begin to creep on his face where I had not seen a smile for, you know, a week and a half at all until the moment I said, and then all of a sudden his face turned gray and ashen. (laughs) His features fell because even though he said it was okay for me to say a swear word, kids always say it's okay for their dads to do things because they they love their dads. It's bullseye. Coming up, when he's not traumatizing his children with swear words, John Hodgman is also a writer. He'll tell me about his new book, Vacation Land. It's his first personal memoir. Up until now, he has, he's been writing these kinds of compendiums of facts, facts which he almost exclusively has made up. Like I wanted to tell a story about how the famous fake photograph of the Loch Ness Monster that everyone sees. We all know that that's a hoax now. We know that it's a hoax because the person who took the picture was the Loch Ness Monster, so there's no way he could have been in the picture. Then I'll talk with Tig Notaro. She's the creator and star of the Amazon show One Mississippi. It's a funny, nuanced, realistic portrait of Mississippi, her home state. She says it was really important to her that the show reflect that. I didn't want to just go in with hey, we're in Mississippi and everyone's dumb and it's just not the world that I come from, that black and white. And I'll tell you about one of my favorite paintings by Henri Rousseau, the man who wanted desperately to be in the Academy and ended up beating them at a new game. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest is John Hodgman. Look, probably know who John is already. He's been a regular contributor to McSweeney's and This American Life, a bunch more. He is an actor who has worked on shows like 30 Rock, Flight of the Concords, Adventure Time. Here at Maximum Fun, where we make this show, he is the judge on the Judge John Hodgman podcast. John's written four books. His latest is Vacation Land. It's kind of a departure for him. His previous work has been pretty much all jokes. I mean, funny jokes... And in a weird way, personal jokes, but nothing literally personal. I mean, stuff like famously an enormous list of hobo nicknames. I mean, his new book, Vacation Land, is funny, but it's also very intimate. It's kind of a meditation about being a middle-aged man in America these days, about fatherhood and adolescence and how to accept that at some point in your life there's going to be more road behind you than I had. John Hodgman is here with me now. John, welcome to Bullseye. Great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's great to finally meet you, Jesse. <laughs> we met we met on this show by telephone. I ladies and gentlemen, my name is John Hodgman and I'm sitting across from my friend Jesse Thorne, whom I was told in the year two thousand five uh, was a young woman living in Santa Cruz who would be calling me <laughs> For a local radio show. Yeah. I was on tour for my, my first book. 
in 2005, and I will not fault my book publicist for making a, an error of that kind. Uh, he had a lot on his plate. When I interviewed you the 12 years ago, it was on the occasion of the release of your first book. You were about to come to San Francisco, where I lived, on yes. book tour. Yes. And I knew you as an occasional contributor to McSweeney's. That's correct. And my wife and I, uh, then girlfriend, went out to your book reading at uh, a bookstore on Haight Street in San yes. Francisco. And uh, the audience of that book reading yes. was composed, as I recall it, of several staff members of the bookstore. That's true. A strange man who some, had some been... Of whom, some of whom I think were called by the bookstore manager 30 minutes before saying, we need bodies. Yeah. Uh, a strange man who had been driving you around for the day to media appearances. Dave Eggers... The best-selling the, author, Dave Eggers. Yes, and my and one of my my mentors and uh, patrons. Yeah, uh, Dave Eggers' baby. <laughs> also one of my mentors and patrons. And myself and my wife. Yes. <laughs> that was it. And you had brought with you uh, uh, your friend and mine, Jonathan Colton, the musician, now yes. of NPR's Ask Me Another, who was dressed... In a coonskin cap and shirt. Yes. A buckskin shirt and coonskin cap. Yes. It was a moment of real existential crisis. Really? So the book, The Areas of My Expertise, and the two that followed it, um, I knew that they were weirdo books uh, written essentially for an audience of one, which was the weirdo 14-year-old that I was when I was 14, who had read... Uh, the Laszlo Letters by Don Novello, in which he wrote crank letters to major companies and printed the very serious replies, and that uh, also various books of trivia, like Big Secrets by William Poundstone, in which was first revealed to me the secrets of Club 33, the secret and now not-so-secret restaurant in Disneyland, and all this sort of cryptic ephemera and weird trivia that I loved when I was a kid, plus play acting and comedy and and I wrapped it all up into this book of fake trivia called The Areas of My Expertise and the conceit was I had been asked to write a book of trivia and I said to the editor what if we write a book of, of where the trivia is all made up so instead of the nine US presidents uh who you know smoked more than nine cigars a day or whatever it would be the nine US presidents who had secret hooks for hands and the editor said, I prefer my idea. And we hung up amicably. And I went out and <laughs> sold the book to someone else. But I knew that it was, I, you know, it began, the book began with rejection. And I knew that it might only reach a very small audience of like-minded strangers who would get it. But I also obviously hoped that it might reach a large audience because I wanted to continue writing these books. And I wanted to be able to feed my human child. Of whom, of which I had one at that time. So facing down the audience in San Francisco, I felt like this this may be it. Some bookstore weirdos, the young man who interviewed me for his interesting radio show, his wife, Dave Eggers, and a baby. That might be that might be the audience that I'm going to reach. And I I already knew that that was a possibility, and this seemed an affirmation of it. I mean, because you had, among other things, in your career as a literary agent. Part of your job was evaluating the commercial prospects of books. Yes. Well, that, sure. That, that was. I wouldn't say that I was trained for that job, but it was in the in the description. So you understood that part of the stakes of the situation were that you might write this weird book, and you had you were in a nice position to go on book tour and promote it and the publisher was very behind it for sure but if it didn't work you knew what the stakes were yeah i knew that i would it was very possible that i wouldn't get to write another book or at least another book of this kind and at the time i had a career you know writing for magazines regular journalism for magazines which i enjoyed very much but the whole the whole point of writing the book was, you know, having been a literary agent and having seen a lot of books come out, especially by my friends, some of which were successful, some of which were less successful, I was very resistant of the idea of writing a book just for the sake of writing a book. 
a lot of people, especially a lot of middle-aged dads, feel like now's the time to write that novel I always wanted to write because it makes them feel complete and whole somehow to have written a book. And so I, even though I had been approached, and the reason that I, when I was approached about writing an actual trivia book and I turned that down, a money offer was made and I turned it down because I don't want to write a book just to have written a book or just for the sake of writing a book. I'm doing a job now, which is writing assignments for and profiles and, and 750 essays about cheese for magazines. That That's a fine job. But if I want to write a book, I want it to be an, a real expression of who I am to the point that I can't not write it, that I can't help but inflict it upon humanity in a couple of hundred pages. And one would hope that it might resonate with other human beings, but ultimately that can't be the point of any of any book or any really meaningful piece of art that goes out there. So it wasn't just a merely a In question. In this particular case, yes. when you say meaningful piece of art, yes. you're talking about a list of 700 names for hobos. 700 invented nicknames for, for hobos riding the rails in the in the 1930s because one of the things about this book that you are currently describing in loving artistic terms is a very silly book yeah but the odd kind of animating feature of this book and its sequels is how deeply personal the nonsense is and it seems like that was one of the goals for you yes was to create the most nonsensey nonsense, such as a list of 700 names for hobos that actually had emotional, personal emotional resonance for you. For me and perhaps me alone. Yeah. Yes. Almost certainly you alone. Well, no, I mean, uh, no, it's true. There is a list of 700 hobo nicknames. That, and I, I, the only one I can ever remember is Giant Leathery Batwings Roland. <laughs> Hobos of the 1930s had nicknames like Frypan Jack, right? Or, or Tennessee Ernie Ford, who sang hobo songs. Like, that was a kind of hobo nickname. And I remember the day, and it was in that same house in western Massachusetts when I was writing my book. And I had had a number of ideas, but then it just struck me. I should do a—I don't remember. I was like, I should do a list of hobo nicknames, phony hobo nicknames. And, the num and I should do a number of them, and that number— emerged to me as 700. Um, and then it became a challenge. And then it became a, a descent into a very painful mania. And then it was finally finished. The idea of it was that I would list 700 hobo nicknames and that the list would take up a few pages and then continue to infect the rest of the book as a running sidebar because it would be so long. And that it would be a visual joke so that the reader would say, I can't believe he's still doing this. Like a different channel they could turn into and go, this is still going on. It was never meant to be read. It was a literary sight gag. But I also knew that I couldn't just repeat names or lorem ipsumit in any way. Like there had to be a unique invented hobo nickname up to 700 for each slot. In order for the joke to work, the joke had to demand sweat from me, mental sweat from me and despair at certain points in order for it to seem properly deranged enough to include to include in the book so that the the reader wouldn't have to work at all and not read it. They would just have to dip in every now and then and goes, that's a different one. That's a different one. That's a different one. And I, and I think to that degree, I love absurd humor and I loved it then. But it had to serve it had to serve something. And even though it's hard for me to express why there were ideas that I had for the book, like I wanted to tell a story about how the famous fake photograph of the Loch Ness monster that everyone sees, it looks like a silhouette of a swan's head poking up over the water. That we all know that that's a hoax now. And I wanted to write a story explaining about, like, of course it's a hoax. We know that it's a hoax because the person who took the picture was the Loch Ness Monster. So there's no way he could have been in the picture. <laughs> he or she, I should say. You know, that's a funny idea that you can play out into a comedic little story, and that's fine. But 
I always wanted it to be an, an honest expression of whatever was going on in, in me. And so, yes, there was no reason for a list of 700 hobo names other than it overtook my imagination and I had to do it. And therefore, I inflicted it upon the world. And if the world of people for whom that would resonate included only you and only Dave Eggers and Dave Eggers' baby and a few other people in the audience, I can't say that it would have been – economically, that would be a disappointment to me. Artistically, I would be very happy. That was sort of exactly what I expected. So it was a confirmation of my expectation that what I'm doing may only reach a very small group of people, and I will always continue doing it, but I better keep a day job. Was there a particular time that you decided that you were no longer going to be John Hodgman in quotation marks and were going to be John Hodgman actual person as a writer and performer? Yeah, it was at breakfast with John Roderick at the Little Purity Diner in Park Slope in January of 2013. My last book of John Hodgman in quotation marks, that is all, had been published in hardcover and paperback, and I had recorded a, a comedy show based on it for Netflix. And I, I felt that I had told certainly every fake fact that I knew how to tell. And for all of the archness of and glibness of those books, I had poured a lot of the real me into it. I had told every story f that I felt like I knew how to tell. And I certainly couldn't go on the road telling any more Mayan apocalypse jokes because 2012 came and passed and you may have noticed the world didn't end and it was embarrassing for me. So I was out. I was just empty. And it was a different kind of – a different kind of – but entwined sort of shock as the midlife moment of knowing that you're no longer becoming something. You're, you're ending something. When you realize I don't, I don't know who or what I am anymore, I wouldn't even know what what to write or to create. And maybe I should stop, but that wasn't an option for me because I didn't a didn't want to stop, and b it was not the case that I was such a deranged millionaire that I could perhaps do the right thing for culture and disappear and let someone else have a chance. <laughs> I had to, I had to sell something and I felt and I had and I had to discover if I had more to say uh so I went into uh to Union Hall a perf small performance space in Brooklyn and set up a residency to just get up on stage once a week initially and just have an audience there that I would have to come up with stuff to say to and in the and while I did in those early shows, I mean, it's just panic is an incredibly powerful creative catalyst. And um, one of my other friends and mentors, uh, Kenny Shopson, and when I talked to him about my deadline for my book one time, he said, and I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to do it. He said, your brain won't let you down. And it was an amazing thing to experience my brain not letting me down, that the, that the, the refiner's fire of standing up in front of an audience you know, even though I believed that I had nothing to say, all of a sudden my brain started shoving stuff to, you know, shoving stuff into the fire. And all of a sudden I had ideas and there weren't ideas. They were what was left for me, which was just true stories about myself without quotation marks about me as a as a as a weird middle aged dad and and husband and person. We'll continue my conversation with John Hodgman after a break. Still to come, John Hodgman shares his tips and tricks on avoiding bullying through nonviolent means. Not only have I always avoided conflict, but for some reason I never really was bullied even very much as a kid, even though I went to school with long hair and a black fedora and a Doctor Who scarf and a briefcase every day. I think I just presented too many, too many targets for a bully to get a bead on. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and this message comes from 2020, where creatives get inspiring, authentic stock photos. Unlike traditional staged stock photos, 2020 has millions of real-world images your audience will actually engage with. 
all under a simple royalty-free license. Today, 2020 is offering Bullseye listeners a seven-day free trial of five photos. Monthly subscription begins after seven days. To start your trial, go to 220.com slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with John Hodgman. He's the host of the Maximum Fun podcast, Judge John Hodgman. He's also the author of a new book, Vacation Land. It's out now. What came out of your mouth that you didn't expect to come out of your mouth when you were required to go up on stage in front of 75 people who'd paid you once a week? The one that broke the taboo was a story about my son getting bullied uh, over the summer, one summer in Maine. For those of you who read my book, Vacation Land, available now at all good booksellers, you will know that I spent sort of my 20s and 30s visiting a wilderness called Western Massachusetts. And now that I'm in my 40s, I've followed my wife to a wilderness of her choosing, which are the, the painful beaches of coastal Maine. And, um, and we, we brought our children with us because we're not horrible people. And we enrolled... Uh, our daughter and son in a sailing and rowing camp that my wife had attended when she had gone there over several summers and that she hated. And I guess it's our job as parents to visit the same trauma that we have endured somehow to pass that along. So she enrolled them. And my son was having a terrible time because he was being bullied. I mean, he was eight years old, so I'm not talking about being shoved into lockers, but being laughed at and excluded and sort of just not not welcomed which is a horrible i mean you know you know as a as a parent um you know when your child is not happy uh, and there's and your and your options are limited to to do anything it is a horrible feeling of powerlessness and similar to how you feel when you are being bullied i had this experience with my son just you know, watching him endure day after day this emotional pain that we had caused for him that he had never asked for. It's not like he was begging to go to rowing class at the yacht club at this place, you know, and being responsible for it and not knowing how to counsel him for it because not only not only have I always avoided conflict, but for some reason I never really was bullied even very much as a kid, even though I went to school with long hair and a black fedora and a Doctor Who scarf and a briefcase every day. I think I just presented too many too many targets for a bully to get a bead on. Like a razzle-dazzle camo? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, like, you know, the few times I had been teased, I, it's not like I was going to get into a fight about it, so I just ignored it and pretended it wasn't happening and then go home and watch a video cassette of The Prisoner or something, you know? Patrick McGowan understands me, at least. That's not something you can say to an eight-year-old, and I really didn't know how to counsel him. And There was no way that he could not go, because you can't say to your children, it's okay, it's okay to quit. I suppose if he were under actual physical harm, I would probably take him out of the yacht club and then burn it down. But this was just kind of run-of-the-mill, no-feel-goods. Right. And it's hard to explain to an eight-year-old why you can't just let him quit the thing because you don't want to explain to him, well, and then you're going to grow up. And if I give you permission to quit, you're going to grow up and you're going to start giving yourself permission to quit. And then you're going to be asking everyone you know to borrow money all the time or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So I I ended up saying to him, look, uh, today I'd like you to wear this particular shirt this T-shirt to rowing club. Do you remember what the shirt's from? And he said, yeah, it's from my birthday party at the at the rock climb, indoor rock climbing place in Brooklyn. I said, right. And why did you get the shirt? He said, well, because I climbed to the top of the wall. And I said, did anyone else climb to the top of the wall? And he's like, no. And I said, before I say the next thing, do you, you're eight years old now. I know you know some curse words. Is it going to bother you if I say a curse word? And by the way, to everyone listening here, I ask you the same thing. <laughs> I'll take your silence as affirmative consent that it is okay for me to proceed. And he said, no, no, dad, it's okay, because he wanted to hear what I had to say. And I said, these kids all know all know each other because they've been coming here 
every year since they were born, and they don't know you at all. They don't know who you are or what you're capable of. That's why they're scared of you. That's why uh, you need to remember that. And if they bring something to you today, if they laugh at you or if they push you in any way, you know, emotionally or physically or whatever, if you want to say something to them, you can say that my name is Name Redacted Hodgman. Uh, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I climbed to the top of the wall when no one else could. You don't know me, so you can't give me any And it was, as I said this to my son, it was the greatest, I thought it was the greatest dadding I had ever done in my life. And by the way, Jesse, this was all off the cuff. I hadn't prepared this. This is all. This is all improv. This is a classic example of your ability to hit the stage and come up with something. That's exactly right. Great, you know, America's greatest storyteller mm-hmm. was born that day. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, and my son, I watched my son's eyes brighten with confidence and a smile just to begin to creep on his face, where I had not seen a smile for you know a, you know a week and a half at all. Until the moment I said, and then all of a sudden his face turned gray and ashen. <laughs> his features fell because because I had broken the rules. Because even though he said it was okay for me to say a swear word, kids always say it's okay for their dads to do things because they, they love their dads. I was completely oblivious to the power dynamic that I was abusing in that moment. I was I bullied my son into saying yes to me saying a swear word. And when dad says a swear word in that context to his own son, then uh, then that's a breaking of the rules. And now now it was if my, my son's face looked as though like now I don't know what could happen anymore. All the rules are off. Now. Now I think those kids might kill me. <laughs> All norms have been shattered. So that was a story that I told to a, a friend over lunch, and it never occurred to me in a million years that I would tell that story to anyone else. I felt it was too personal. I felt that I, I, I didn't love swearing on stage. <laughs> you know, I, that's the smallest of the, of, the, of the objections to that story. I felt that it was too personal. I felt that it implicated my son in a way that I never liked implicating my children in my work. For complex reasons, I felt that weirdly it might be hurtful to the kids who bullied my son, you know, like, and it felt and it was raw and it was about my failing. And who cares? Ultimately, that was the way I would protect myself from being vulnerable on stage, because like, no, everyone's got a dumb autobiography. Who cares? I told the story at lunch. I had the show that night. I went back to write the comedy for the show I'm like, I can't just dress up like Ayn Rand again. I got to come up with something new to do. I had nothing. I got nothing. I got nothing. I'm like, oh, I could I could tell that story. And I told the story and it went over well. And you know what? I'm, tell- I'm lying to you now. I don't remember how it went. All I know is that it felt right when I was telling it on stage. And all I know is, all I remember feeling is this is what I've got now. This is what I've got. This is what I have to offer. This is the truest thing I have to offer. After 700 hobo nicknames, this is the truest expression of myself that I have. And that's my job. If I'm going to continue doing this is to just be honest. But this time for real. Well, John, thank you very much for coming back on Bullseye. Thank you very much, Jesse. My friend, I'm not lying when I say I love you. I love you too, friend. Bye-bye. John Hodgman, his book Vacation Land is out now. Get it wherever you buy books. Also, if you haven't heard his podcast, Judge John Hodgman, please give it a listen. It's fantastic. I want to particularly highlight the performance of the bailiff, Jesse Thorne. If you want to hear more of our interview, we'll have a longer, almost unedited version of the conversation on the Judge John Hodgman podcast feed. It's live now. You can go take a listen. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Next up, Tig Nataro. Tig's been on our show a few times before. When we last talked, it was 2014. She was kicking off her Boyish Girl Interrupted tour. Only a couple years before that, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. It's a topic that showed up in her stand-up comedy in a really honest, affecting way. 
In 2015, she collaborated with writer Diablo Cody to create the show One Mississippi. She's also the star. Her character, Tig, is a radio DJ who's moved from Los Angeles back to her home state of Mississippi. Just like Tig in real life, she's a cancer survivor, she's gay, and she's really, really funny. Let's take a listen to a little bit of the show's second season. In this scene, Tig's just rolled up to work, and she's barely gotten out of her car before she is approached by two local evangelists. We're with New Hope Ministry, and uh, we heard your radio show. And we love your soul, firstly. Why, thank you. So it just pained us so much to hear your struggles. Which struggles? We've all been through it, too. And we just want you to know, despite the controversy around other ministries, it is possible to pray the gay away. What if I want to pray the gay to stay? Uh, We don't want that. We want you to stop spreading that sinful stuff. Yeah, and and stop talking about it on your show. Well, it's my show, and uh, if I remember correctly, there's still a First Amendment, so feel free to not listen to my show. Uh, Oh, wait, here's a pamphlet, and uh, that's my number on the back in case you need to discuss anything further. Nikki. Nikki, stop flirting with me. Tigna Taro, welcome back to Bullseye. It's great to have you back on the show. It's tremendous to be here. Has anyone ever tried to convince you not to be gay? Uh, you know what? <laughs> uh, one of the first people I came out to uh, was this random therapist that I went to because I was trying to process my feelings for my first, the person that ended up being my first girlfriend. And when I um, when I went to the session with her, I asked her what she thought and she said I don't think you're gay and I could tell that her reaction was homophobic so um but aside from that nobody ever tried to um you know my family's all been very supportive and friends what a disastrous I know it's like (laughs) attempt at self-care I know it was really I felt really stifled and confused but it it actually caused pretty immediate clarity right after like immediately after yeah I I thought just in being told no I felt like "Mm, yes (laughs) yes I am uh, so I could I could read through what was happening. You know, when I was watching the second season of your show, after mm-hmm. I watched the first season of your show, and the, the scene we just heard was from the second season, one of the things that surprised me was in that first episode of the second season, uh, your character is basically forced to deal with bigotry. Mm-hmm. And I think in the first season of your show, it felt like you had made a self-conscious choice to just deal with your character being gay and you being gay. I mean, you sort of play yourself as almost incidental Mm -hmm. to the rest of the situation. And I wonder why did you decide to introduce that theme in the second year? Well, the first season, it was important to me to present my home state and my somewhat real hometown as the beautiful, loving place that it is in in my mind and, and, you know, based on the experiences I had and the acceptance my family and friends had. I thought it would be kind of a an obvious thing to go into a show that takes place in Mississippi to show the uh, dark, ugly side of it all. And I just didn't want to show that the first season. I, I wanted to go into other issues. And, and then going into the second season, I felt like it'd be irresponsible to completely ignore it as we moved forward in the series because... There is an ugly side. There is, um, yeah, there's <laughs> there's everything that people know. But I wanted to show people what they didn't know. Because in the first season when I bring my girlfriend home, I had a lot of people ask, like, 
oh, you know, why wasn't that? I thought that scene was going to be the awkwardness of, and and I was saying, it's not a part of my life. I, I don't, I don't relate to that, even if I do bring somebody home to Mississippi. Do you feel like um, part of your life as a coastal California Hollywood elitist <laughs> is serving as a kind of weird ambassador for this other part of your life and identity as a Southerner? That you have to like explain to people what that means who are making presumptions or that kind of thing? Well, I mean, I get into so many conversations with people when I tell them I'm from Mississippi, and uh, there's always the immediate, like, oh, God, what is that like? Or, ugh, or you just thrilled you're out of there? And and I'm very quick to defend my family and my memories and my time there and the physical beauty of the place and 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 also quick to bring uh, to ask where they're from. And, you know, you find out they're from New York or Illinois. And, and I'm like, you, are you not aware that that um, there's racism and horror going on in, in other states as well? And I remember this one very well-known comedian that I was talking to. Um, I asked him where he was from, and he said Illinois. And, and I said, is your family... Is everybody just open-minded? He was like, yeah, no, they're racist. I was like, why are you, why are you, why is that the immediate reaction when I say I'm from Mississippi? I, I of course, know, and I, I, I'm well aware, and I am right behind, we need to change things. You know, I am a, a gay woman. I'm not the most celebrated being in Mississippi. But I just wanted to show that it's more complex. And beyond the state of Mississippi, that's what we wanted to do with the show, is how complex it is when you love your family, your friends, your state, your town. I didn't want to just go in with, hey, we're in Mississippi and everyone's dumb and and uh, it's just not... It's just not the world that I come from, that black and white. You were an adult when you became a stand-up, right? Like it, yeah. you had been an adult for a minute. Yeah, I was 26. 20, I've been doing it for 20 years. I'm 46. I started at 26. I mean, I feel like when I meet uh, relatively few comics start past their mid-20s, although there certainly are – uh, plenty of them. Uh-huh. I feel like the thing that is missing once you're not 21 is basically foolhardiness. Uh-huh. Like, if you don't have the, you know, like I think a lot of 19-year-olds get on stage as stand-up comics at open mics because they think, of course, the world wants to know what they have to say about things. And, of course, they deserve to because they're 19. Yeah. And by the time you're 25 or 26, you have you've developed shame, and so you have to have other things pushing you in order to actually make that happen. Well, yeah, it, it was. I think uh, up until that point, a lifetime of trying to get back on track and get back to where I was supposed to be, and. Um, you mean like that A student? responsible adult track? Well, well, to get away from... Not that I was ever on that track. It's just (laughs) that I was constantly being told I need to do this. I need to go to college. I need to pull it together, be responsible, be all these things, which makes sense. But I, you know, I wanted to go to an arts school when I was uh, a teen and my stepfather would not let me. And um, it's one of those things where it's like, why not? You know, it's like I was playing guitar every second of the day. I was constantly drawing. I was constantly – those are my two obsessions, you know, was uh, music and art. And I mean, I I loved comedy, but I didn't know that was an option out there. But I just wanted to express myself in in some, some way. 
and I was my mother supported it. My mother was an artist, and that was the funny thing was that my stepfather was drawn to my mother and accepted all of that in her, but it was utterly unacceptable <laughs> from me. It was fine to do in my room, but no, we're not. That's not the route you're you're going to take in life. Your stepfather is a character on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, the show, the sort of inciting incident of the show is in part, uh, you know, one of the huge inflection points in your life and your career, which is that you had a period, a relatively short period of time where you broke up with your girlfriend, had uh, got cancer, had a life-threatening, uh, another life-threatening health condition and lost your mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of what happens uh, both to start One Mississippi and over the course of the first season of One Mississippi. And um, your father, your stepfather on the show is based on your stepfather. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's so – I think it's rare that I have seen a character on TV – portrayed as so square, dorky, and uh, uh, possibly uh, uh, maybe socially awkward, possibly on the autism spectrum, but also so sweetly and sensitively portrayed. Uh I wonder if it was hard for you to uh, have the distance from your stepdad to realize uh, the things that you wanted to show about him. Well, I mean, I, you know, who knows what I'm actually aware of and (laughs) what's really going on. But um, I knew that I wanted to take that side of him that was so militant and so rigid and really make that who he was. And um, and, uh, I also wanted to make him I remember saying in the writer's room I want to make him essentially the hero in almost every situation because even when he's wrong or misguided he's really he's really trying and this is a side of him that surfaced when my mother died and um he started following my career and he started um calling me and he <laughs> yeah, and uh came out to visit me and really has extended himself in a way that didn't exist before more with Tignataro still to come when we return from a quick break she'll tell me why it's important for a show like one mississippi to have an all female writing staff it's bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message comes from Smilf, a new comedy series from Showtime. Based on a Sundance award-winning short film, Smilf takes a hilarious and unabashedly honest look at Bridget Bird, a 20-something single mom from South Boston. Smilf is loosely based on the life of series creator Frankie Shaw. Check out Smilf, streaming now, only on Showtime. Go to Showtime.com and enter code BULLSEYE to get two weeks free. Offer expires December 1st. Hi, I'm Daniel Alarcón, host of NPR's Spanish-language podcast, Radio Ambulante. Why should you tune in to our show? We asked our listeners. Because it humanizes Latin America. It's relevant. I feel like I'm home. It's a great way to practice my Spanish. It's addictive. It completely changed my life. Listen to Radio Ambulante on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my conversation with Tig Notaro in just a second. But first, I want to tell you about a brand new culture podcast here at Max Fun. It's called Switchblade Sisters. This is the story. My pal April Wolf is one of the panelists on our show, Who Shot Ya, our movie podcast. She's also a film critic at LA Weekly. And she pitched me this idea. She says, every week I'm going to have on a female filmmaker and we're going to talk about our favorite genre movies, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, action, exploitation, all that stuff. We're really going to get into it. 
but we're going to do it as women, people who are often marginalized in the discussion of genre movies. I was like, yes, sign me up. Absolutely. Um, she's got upcoming episodes with uh, Karen Kusama, who directed Girl Fight and Jennifer's Body. Uh, she's talking about the 80s vampire movie Near Dark. And Emily Gordon, who's been on Bullseye before and co-wrote The Big Sick, is going to talk about a movie called Bone Tomahawk, which is a horror western. If you like Bullseye, I think you'll really dig Switchblade Sisters. The first episode comes out Thursday, November 9th, but you can subscribe right now. Just open up your favorite podcasting app and search for Switchblade Sisters. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian Tig Notaro. Her TV series on Amazon, One Mississippi, just entered its second season. I want to play another clip from One Mississippi. So... Your character on the show is a radio DJ and a monologist. She sort of, on the show, she sort of tells a story from her life and then weaves music in with it. And in the second season of the show, you've moved to Mississippi. You're working with a woman who you're kind of romantically interested in, who's played by your real-life wife, Stephanie. And she is, as far as she's concerned, straight, which I think was also the case with your real-life wife, Stephanie, uh, before the two of you got together. Anyway, um, this is from the first episode of the second season. Tig, you've just finished telling a story about something that happened in your life that seemed like it was going to be uh, an incident of molestation, but turned out to be completely benign. And then Stephanie's character, whose name is Kate, chimes in, and she has a story too. Well, you know, I was almost molested too. What, is this a competition now? <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's hear yours. Like, when I was in high school, I played field hockey, and one day my coach informed everybody that he could tell who was on their period based on a scent they gave off. No. No, no, no. I'm saying, like, no, he could not tell, but also, no, that's, that's wrong. I know. And so he had everybody line up, and he went down the line smelling everybody's sure. private areas. Got it. And what's so crazy is at the time, I didn't even realize what he was doing was weird. I was just keeping score in my head to see how many he got right, which, by the way, he was getting them all wrong. Well, of course. And by the way, you were molested. Right. But I mean, not really, though. Yeah, really. Um, Tig, I don't know if you know this, uh -huh. but um, sexual harassment and sex assault have been in the news recently. <laughs> I've I've caught a headline. Um, and in fact, was, as we're as we're who knows what the future holds, but as we're recording this, um, the broad variety of allegations about Harvey Weinstein are very fresh, um, and they've led to. A lot of women on social media sharing their own stories of uh, uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And that sort of is what this episode of the show is about. Mm -hmm. What's that like for you? To see all this come yeah. to the surface? <laughs> Most of it's not good stuff. Well, I mean, it was uh, every we, – we have an all-female writer's room and – all of us had experienced assault or harassment to some degree or another, and and we felt very driven by um, telling this, sharing this storyline, because aside from personal stories, we also knew of people and situations that were still going on and celebrated individuals and and it was just it was really sad and disheartening and 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 we just thought we have this opportunity to share our stories or our our friends' stories and it's truly an epidemic that we never imagined would start breaking through and it's it's something that I really, I really did not think 
as hopeful as I am, I did not see this sort of breakthrough happening. One of the things about having an all-female writer's room is that you're in a really unusual professional situation, which is when you're in a TV writer's room, you're there specifically to share stories with each other as important as possible, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, just like when famously when they started writing Freaks and Geeks, you know, Paul Feig came in and he and Judd Apatow were like, okay, everybody write all the worst things that happened to you in high school on an index card. That's uh-huh. where we're, you know. And I imagine that being able to have that kind of situation is one of the reasons that you would, might want to have a female writer's room, that you would have a situation where when you're looking for those stories, people feel comfortable sharing stories that they otherwise would only share in a, a non-professional situation. Yeah, I mean, our writer's room is, I mean, there is a boo-hoo probably every <laughs> other day. Um, it's and, a really funny show, by the way. <laughs> I know. It's a, totally. Even um, goofy sometimes. Um, yeah, there is humor, but it's, I feel like the humor is, is as real as the drama is. It's, um, and there's silly breaks in reality that we go into, but, um but yeah, the the writers' room is it. You have to feel one hundred percent supported and uh, safe to share exactly what you think, feel, experienced, and um, and I'm I'm forever, forever indebted to these writers for sharing their stories and weaving them into mine to make certain experiences seem believable and real for myself and to write so well in my voice and it's it's really something i feel i feel so so lucky i want to play a clip from the show so this is your character and my guess is Tignataro the creator of one mississippi um, and you're meeting with the owner of the radio station that uh, you, that you, at which you work with your producer Kate, and uh, Kate has just had a, a terrible experience with a male superior. And um, uh, as I, I think we mentioned, Kate, Kate is played by your wife Stephanie Allen. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm taking this to HR. HR? Can't you just fire him? Sadly, no. It's a legal thing. They have to investigate. But we'll get him fired, trust me. But he doesn't get to be here while they're investigating it. Well, they usually just try and figure a way you don't have to deal with him while they're looking into it. So he just gets to masturbate at everyone while HR's looking into it. I can't imagine he'll masturbate at everyone. It's fine. We should just go to the police then. Police? Really? Yeah, it's a crime. It's assault. The police aren't going to care about a producer masturbating at someone. I mean... To them, that's less of a violation than parking in a loading zone. It's terrible. But I just think we have to handle it internally. It's a really intense scene. Yeah. It is a good joke, though. Uh, I don't think he's going to masturbate at everyone. (laughs) (laughs) See, there's there's a little comedy here and there in the show. Um, I mean... (sighs) Take you don't have to talk about this if you're talked out about it or uh, your judgment. It's a edited show. Okay. Um, there was reporting on rumors mm-hmm. uh, that that exact behavior mm-hmm. um, was something that the comedian Louis C.K. did, uh, who's uh, an EP on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think he's. Uh, I don't think he's actively involved in the production of the show. He's for sure not. Um, <laughs> um, did you choose the act involved in that storyline advisedly? So that's it's a firsthand account from somebody that um, 
in their professional world experience that. And there's, as we've seen and we've heard and we'll probably continue to hear, there are plenty of people that have done this. And, um, you know, it's, it's not my place to call out names. It's whether it's who's being accused or who is a victim, but it is my place to tell this story, uh, to speak up for people that need the support. And, uh, and I'm very firmly planted in that position. Uh, and however it comes out or doesn't come out, that, that's, not, that's not my job. But um, again, all of the writer's room have experienced assault and harassment. And, and we felt like that particular scene was one that I think is confusing for people and maybe not a well-known way of harassing or assaulting someone. And uh, I think it's really well done. Well, Tig, I don't... Tig, I don't have uh, any more questions for you, so... um... (laughs) So should we keep going? (laughs) (laughs) I I really want to thank you. Uh, I love the show so much, and I just, uh, I just think you're the best. So I'm, I'm really. I appreciate that. I'm really grateful to that you came and and did the show. Well, the feeling is mutual. I think you're doing great stuff, and uh, I'm, I'm happy for you. Tignataro. Both seasons of One Mississippi are available to stream on Amazon right now. Check it out there. Before we end an episode of Bullseye, we'd like to leave you with a recommendation from me. It's called The Outshot. Henri Rousseau was born in 1844. For about 40 years, he lived basically as a regular guy, struggling to some extent. He served in the army without particular distinction. He worked in the civil service. Somewhere along the way, maybe in his late 30s, early 40s, he started painting. He was, it seems, genuinely self-taught, although he admitted to asking for advice once in a while. He was 42 years old when he first submitted to the Salon des Independents. This was an exhibition with no prizes that was a big deal in the art scene in Paris, an alternative to the government one. The only ranking at this, really, was the Hanging Committee, They decided where things went, what got prominent placement, and he did very badly with them. In fact, he did very badly, at least at first, with nearly everyone. He saved his clippings, all his reviews, and most of them weren't nice. One critic wrote that it seemed Rousseau must paint with his feet while wearing a blindfold. A couple of his paintings apparently were sliced with knives while they were hanging. And yet Rousseau persisted. Every winter, he took time away from his work to paint, and every spring, he submitted work to the salon. It was never like anyone else's. And in time, some people started to take to it. The painting that moved me to talk about Rousseau is called Surprised, or Tiger in a Tropical Storm. Surprised actually has an exclamation mark. I saw it at the National Gallery in London. Rousseau showed it in the Salon of 1891. He was 47 years old. He'd been showing for five years with no particular success. It's a jungle scene. There's rain driving diagonally. Trees are being pulled across the canvas by wind. Intense jeweled greens fight in the grass with the gray sky. A few lurid red flowers bloom. And this tiger, flat and round and weird, curls around the long leaves of the grass, ready to strike. 
The painting doesn't have any particular sense of perspective. It's oddly flat. It's not entirely clear what the tiger is standing on. And it isn't a picture of any jungle in particular. In fact, Rousseau never saw the jungle. He basically assembled in his mind's eye plants that he looked at in the botanical garden and animals that he'd seen drawings of in books. And those are the reasons that the critics hated him. They wanted technique, and he didn't have it. If his goal was to paint what the jungle looks like, to open a window so that we could see the jungle, then, to be frank, he did a terrible job. But look at Surprised some more, and it's clear. It's not a picture of the jungle. It's a picture of the imagination. It's a picture of a dream. I mean, granted, Rousseau took sort of a shortcut. I mean, there's that line that you have to know the rules so that you can break them, and he never really got to know the rules. I mean, he never composed things right or handled perspective elegantly or, for that matter, knew how to paint feet. But these strange qualities of his paintings, they weren't just happy accidents born of ignorance. He wanted to picture the magical, emotional, more than real. He didn't want a painting of a tiger that just looked like a tiger. Rousseau wanted acceptance, but he wanted it on his terms. He wrote to a critic about going to the botanical gardens once. He said, When I go into the glass houses and I see the strange plants of exotic lands, it seems to me that I enter into a dream. That's how I feel looking at these pictures. Not even that it's a depiction of dreams, even exactly, like a surrealist landscape might claim to be. Just that it has the feeling where emotion and color and shapes overwhelm the rules. Ezra Pound wrote a beautiful poem about one of the jungle paintings. It's called Yadwiga on a Red Couch Among Lilies. The picture is a jungle with a woman reclining on a red couch, and Pound addresses the woman. So Rousseau, to explain why the red couch persisted in the picture with the lilies, tigers, snakes, and the snake charmer, and you, and birds of paradise, and the round moon, described how you fell dreaming at full of moon on a red velvet couch within your green tessellated boudoir. Hearing flutes, you dreamed yourself away in the moon's eye to a barrel jungle and dreamed that bright moon lilies nodded their petaled heads around your couch. But Rousseau couldn't even truly bring himself to paint something so representative as that, just a picture of a dream. He wanted to paint more than that. The poem closes like this. But to a friend in private, Rousseau confessed, his eye so possessed by the glowing red of the couch which you, Yadwiga, pose on, that he put you on the couch to feed his eye with red. Such red, under the moon, in the midst of all that green and those great lilies. In the end, Rousseau painted not a picture, not a representation of something sitting in front of him, but a feeling, just that pure aesthetic joy of color and shapes and leaves and creatures and bodies. And he knew he was right. And so when they laughed at him at the salon and when he needed money that he didn't have, played violin on the street corner for change, Rousseau still made time to paint. And he showed his work and he grew in renown, until one day Picasso had a dinner for him, a banquet. It's famous now, and no one at the time was quite sure if it was supposed to be a joke or not, that Picasso was having this party to honor a man who couldn't paint feet. And on that day, Rousseau stood up and told everyone that he was glad to have been invited to the party because he was the greatest painter of the modern age. And I think those folks at the dinner accepted him then because they'd seen his work and they'd met him and they could tell he was probably right. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. 
Our show is recorded at Maximum Fun World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where recently, tempted by the fruit falling out of some trees, we noticed some geese gambling into the road. Gambling in more ways than one. I hope that fruit was sweet, geese. You're playing a dangerous game. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien. Our thanks to Jesus Ambrosio for helping this week. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries Records. The Go Team have a brand new single out, by the way. I watched the video uh, earlier today, and man, it is a blast. I recommend Googling that. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We'll share all of our interviews with you there. Some stupid internet stuff. Lots of thrilling discussion. Like this week we were talking about what the first CD we'd ever bought was. Mine was Dangerous by Michael Jackson. I also had, I also had two different Arrested Development CDs. That's right. The hit one and the follow-up. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. I also had two Spin Doctor CDs. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.